Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 148, Some Kind of Normalcy. Now, it's just been a couple days since I've recorded the last episode, so no new patrons, no updates there. But big thank you to everyone who does donate and support the show in any way that you do. You're all wonderful. Uh, Quick apology for anyone who heard the cats and things in the last episode. We are doing home renovations, and it's pretty chaotic here. It's very difficult to find quiet time, and I had to be locked in with the cats. So that was tricky. So thank you for bearing with me. So let's get into it. Last time, following the collapse of the prince's post-coup regime, we saw him resolve to mend fences with with Russia and restore the constitution by forming a united government with the liberals and conservatives. This left Russia more isolated than ever, as they blamed Battenberg entirely for the whole situation, for basically anything that had gone wrong. Still, Bulgarian officials got some concessions from Russia, and that coalition government passed several long-awaited measures, including finally finalizing the railroad issue. However, once this was done, the National Assembly turned to the constitutional amendments that the conservatives had asked for, passing many, though with a three-year delay for them going into effect, and thereby angering the left wing of the Liberal Party. As a result, that wing now considers uh, Dragan Tsankov and the moderates in the Liberal Party to be traitors, and is formally separating itself from the rest of the party. So, with the end of 1883, the conservatives resigned from the government to allow Tsankov to form his own cabinet, as everyone is basically settling in to prepare for elections in the spring. So, we'll begin with two quick general events from the year 1883. The first is the publication of Ivan Vazov's Epic of the Forgotten. This is a poetic saga that was more than simple literature. It really lionized the Bulgarian struggle for freedom against the Ottomans and bitterly contrasted that struggle with the day's political squabbles, which everyone listening to this podcast, you can appreciate what a strong contrast that must have been. So the young writer was really attacking the leaders of his day although I doubt many of them paid attention. In addition, the first Armenian library in Bulgaria opened. Now, I haven't talked much on this podcast about the Armenians uh, that have lived in the lands which make up Bulgaria since, well, even before Asparuh ever arrived. Now, they've lived there again for for centuries and centuries, even longer than the proto-Bulgarians, and many migrated to Bulgaria during the Ottoman period because they were part of the same empire. But since 1878, a large portion have fled Bulgaria, basically not feeling welcome, fearing similar attacks and discrimination to what many ethnic Turks had faced, even though they were largely Christian. So that's kind of what's happening there. But, you know, there's still a small Armenian community here today. Uh, I think it may be closed. I know there was at least one Armenian restaurant in Sofia. So it is an ongoing but small and vibrant community, and it's establishing itself in this new Bulgarian state. So all that brings us to 1884. 
when Tsankov forms a new cabinet in January and purposely excludes Karavelov and Stambolov, members of the left faction of his party that are basically breaking away. Now, Tsankov claimed that this was because they now lived in eastern Rumelia and were therefore now Ottoman subjects, but, well, that was kind of more of an excuse, and Stambolov and Karavelov did not take their exclusion well. It really just made them even more angry. Then, to make matters worse, Tsankov soon finalized the purchase of the Ruse-Varna railway line, which Bulgaria had to do so under treaty obligations, so that wasn't very controversial. But he did so at an inflated price, which is where the controversy lay. As a result of this, relations between the two wings of the Liberal Party worsened and worsened. Soon, Stefan Stambolov called a meeting to attempt to heal the growing rift within the party. However, there was universal support for basically just kicking Tsankov out of the party for the unacceptable compromises he had made with the conservatives. Thus, in February, Tsankov broke off and formed the new Constitutional Liberal Party. It had a different name at first, but it became the Constitutional Liberal Party, so we'll know it by that name. In the following months, as politicians in Bulgaria prepared for those upcoming elections, Russia was trying to exert more influence in eastern Rumelia. They successfully convinced the Ottomans to replace Alexander Bogoridi with Gavril Krastevich. So, remember, Alexander Bogoridi had been governor general since, uh, well, basically since eastern Rumelia was formed, but he officially had a five-year term, and, well, that five years was up. Now, Krastevich had ironically actually served Alexander Bokoridi's father as a secretary back in the day in Constantinople and was generally a well-respected journalist and writer who had been active in the movement for church independence. Despite his impressive background, though, he had also worked to, to really serve Russian influence and, well, he soon came into conflict with the liberals in Plovdiv and, well, we'll discuss that more later. But all you need to know is that the Russians now have their preferred candidate leading Eastern Rumelia, and that candidate is kind of butting heads a bit with the liberals there. Now, all this brings us to those 1884 elections. Now, for the first time, there were three parties participating. The conservatives, the liberals representing the left wing of the party, and the constitutional liberals representing the former moderate wing of the party. However, despite that new voting law I mentioned before being in place so only literate people and people with property could vote, the old situation in which the conservatives had very little support basically kept up. And thus, this was in fact an election between the two former wings of the Liberal Party. The conservatives were really at this point fading into the background. Now, this election had the usual low turnout, only 28.9%, again, despite not that many people even being able to vote, but it did bring a decisive victory to the liberals under Petko Karavelov. So I couldn't find any exact numbers of, you know, what the breakdown was based on party, uh, but we do have some interesting data about who was elected in this new fourth national assembly. I'll quote Black here, quote, of a total of 188 members, there were 55 merchants, 43 peasants, 30 lawyers, 23 government employees, 12 former cabinet members, 12 school teachers, 4 priests, and 11 members representing miscellaneous professions. In this cross-section of the country, the peasants were greatly underrepresented. End quote. Now, that last point should come as no surprise based on the voting requirements, but there you have some sense of who was really represented in the assembly. 
And again, I don't have a breakdown by party, but the liberals under Karavelov have decisively won. But Dragan Tsankov was still technically prime minister and attempted to block Karavelov from becoming president of the National Assembly by nominating the only man who could potentially challenge him to the position, Stefan Stambolov. However, Stambolov simply deferred to Karavelov, and so Karavelov returned to his old position as president of the National Assembly, while Stefan Stambolov became its vice president. Now, at this point, even Alexander Battenberg got involved in trying to heal the rift in the liberals, but it was no use. Tsankov had resigned, and Karavelov then became prime minister, elevating Stambolov to president of the National Assembly. Now, the very first order of business for the new assembly was to undo all the constitutional changes voted on in the final days of the unitary government. Thus, all those constitutional changes that the conservatives wanted and believed that they had achieved, well, they all amounted to nothing because they were repealed years before any of them went into effect. Now, the new assembly also soon received a plea by 1,800 weavers and spinners. Now, the previous year, workers in this industry based around Sopot, Karlovo, and Kolofor had mounted protests against the importation of cheap European yarn. Now they were protesting the opening of new factories. Now, I couldn't find any information about how the assembly reacted to this plea, but it's clear that these workers, along with many like them in Bulgaria, are stuck in a difficult economic situation, sandwiched between a floor of cheap imports from abroad and growth of domestic factories capable of producing cloth much cheaper. So these older kind of home production lines, this is kind of older form of uh, production of clothing and things like that is really getting squeezed out. Now, soon the Karavelov government was really trying to bring in more modern economic methods. I mean, this is probably why I imagine the National Assembly didn't care very much about this plea because it was basically pleas from people representing older economic methods. And the Karavelov government was definitely interested in economic modernization. So with this in mind, they soon raised taxes fueling frustration as many peasants looked towards the bustle of Sofia and all the highly paid government workers with frustration and scorn as their own economic situation was not really improving much. But despite their frustration with all these changes, the old economic model in Bulgaria was slowly changing as capitalism basically crept in. But while many of the elements of capitalism were coming to Bulgaria over in Russia, a Bulgarian by the name of Dmitry Blagov was working hard to spread Marxist ideas. The year before, he had founded what was actually the very first Marxist group in Russia, founded by a Bulgarian, interestingly enough, and by this point he was operating an illegal newspaper and library on behalf of that group. Now, Blagov had previously supported the April Uprising and actually aided the Russian army during the Liberation War. He had then traveled to study in Odessa, and like so many promising young Bulgarians of his time, there he became acquainted with Marxist ideas and began organizing. So, jumping ahead a little bit, next year in 1885, Blagov is going to be expelled from Russia and returned to Bulgaria. So, basically, all that is to say, while capitalism is kind of establishing itself in Bulgaria, Marxism is not far behind. Also a fun fact we'll talk about much, much later in the podcast, but I used to live in a city named after Dmitry Blagov, Blagovgrad. You may be wondering, why is a city in Bulgaria today named after the kind of founder of Bulgarian Marxism? 
Well, because the name it had before that was Turkish and while all the other communist named cities in Bulgaria were renamed back to their old names, no one wanted to bring Blagograd back to having its old Turkish name. So they just kind of shrugged and kept it. So there you go. All right. So speaking of capitalism, another major project in the new National Assembly was banking reform. First, the Bulgarian National Bank was finally made a state institution. It would serve the government by loaning it money and issuing bonds, but it would also serve merchants and industrialists by providing them with credit. It also had the exclusive right to issue the national currency and provide mortgages. Now, a postal savings bank, i.e. a bank where every post office also is kind of de facto a bank branch, uh, was also to be founded as a place where everyday Bulgarians could save their money somewhere other than, you know, a jar in the backyard. However, it didn't end up being put into practice, but it's still kind of a proposal that's out there. But all that is to say, Karavelov and his government, with the help of Ivan Geshov uh, coming out of Plovdiv, put into place many of the foundations for a modern economy, for the government, business, private individuals, banking, all that kind of stuff. Now, the Karavelov government was also nationalizing all the railways, creating the Bedege Company, which, well, it's still around. Anyone who's traveled by rail today, you'll have in Bulgaria, you'll have traveled with Bedege. Now, while all these modernizing uh, efforts were going on, there were a few other issues. One was a little spat over the island in this, this small island in the Biala Timok River, a tiny spit of land which I couldn't even find if it exists today because rivers tend to shift and sometimes you'll have an island for a few decades or even centuries and then eventually it just sort of washes away. But anyways, this little island in this river on the border with Serbia was awarded to Bulgaria at the Congress of Berlin. However, for reasons none of my sources went into, Prince Battenberg had agreed to give it to Serbia. However, Karavelov and the entire National Assembly was very mad about this and said, absolutely not. The prince does not have the authority to do that, and we will not let him do that. So, you know, it didn't really go up anywhere, but it was a kind of touchpoint for national unity and Bulgarian nationalism. It really united the entire uh, National Assembly to say no to the prince and to say, you know, we're going to stand up for Bulgaria together. Now, soon afterwards, there was another boundary dispute, this time with Romania, over an Ottoman fortress which was next to the city of Silistra on the Danube. Now, this fortress was key to protecting Silistra. If, if you know, someone didn't control this fortress but controlled Silistra, then whoever controlled the fortress could easily take the town. They were very interlinked. Now, the Congress of Berlin had given this fortress to Romania, but Russia had subsequently demanded it be given to Bulgaria, which kind of made sense because Silistra was controlled by Bulgaria, and I mentioned the two really should go hand in hand. My sources indicate that Basically, everyone had agreed on its status back in 1881, but evidently the issue was coming up again now. And nothing seemed to really change except some back and forth between the Bulgarian and Romanian governments, but it was another incident to drive nationalistic feelings in Bulgaria. But, of course, these moments of unity are, we could say, indicative of how Bulgaria's politics are changing at the moment. In short, they're finally, dare I say it, normalizing stabilizing i mean the last five years i guess seven years since the the war but really about five years or so since the six years since the kind of bulgarian government was really established have been incredibly chaotic 
I mean, I'm, I'm sure all of you have had a hard time following just what has been going on. I've had a hard time following what's going on and what all the parties are doing and all the what Russia is doing. It's 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 been incredibly complicated. But now, under this new Karavelov government, for the first time, it seems that Bulgaria and its government is kind of getting into a little bit more of a rhythm, starting to, as I said, actually pass key bits of legislation and, and do the normal process of governance. To make that happen, the prince's ambitions had been curtailed, Russian power and therefore Russian meddling had been greatly reduced, and the liberals under Karavelov had a healthy majority in the National Assembly. So all these things really came together to make this stability possible. In addition, now that many of the major issues of the day, like the Constitution, the railroads, etc., had been dealt with, the government could kind of finally get a bit of breathing room. But this breathing room also meant that the government could finally focus on another major goal, unification with Eastern Rumelia. Now, by September of 1884, Elections for Eastern Rumelia's uh, district assemblies had been held, and the National Party won a resounding victory, in large part propelled by its enthusiastic endorsement for unification with Bulgaria as soon as possible. That same month, a new customs agreement was also signed between the two states. So, at this point, there's been a few years of really laying the groundwork, ensuring that Bulgaria and Eastern Rumelia are governed in as similar way as possible, and so that you know, basically when the time comes, they can join as easily as possible. And the newfound political stability in Sofia meant that the possibility of bringing them together now seemed more real and achievable than ever. Because of course, before with the coups and the counter coups and all this stuff going on, it clearly wasn't really the right time to join with Eastern Rumelia. But now it seemed like that time was coming. Now, of course, there was also activity around the other major territorial aim of the young Bulgarian state, Macedonia. Late in 1884, a weekly newspaper and organization called Macedonian Voice, or Makedonsky Glas, was founded. Now, it had many aims, besides just joining Bulgaria to Macedonia. It also supported unification with Eastern Amelia, no shock there, and wanted to really lobby the great powers on behalf of Bulgarian unification with both power, with both kind of territories. And to do that, it planned not just to, again, lobby the great powers, but to actually organize revolutionary activity just as the Bulgarians had done previously to help try to kind of liberate them from themselves from the Ottomans. So it would be a very multifaceted organization, aiming to tackle the Macedonian question in many different ways at once. Soon that Marxist organizer Dmitry Blagov, who I mentioned, was actually publishing articles in the newspaper as well. So it was clearly open to many kind of political viewpoints, uh, as long as they all wanted that same goal of unification. So this wraps up the events in 1884. Bulgaria is more stable now than it's been in really years or even decades. Critical political and economic issues have finally been resolved. Although the ongoing relations with Russia and the desire for unification with Eastern Romalia and Macedonia both hold the potential to kind of blow up this whole situation at any moment. But for the time being, it's calm. Almost as if to commemorate the new normalcy of Bulgarian politics, 1884 saw the beginning of the construction of the National Assembly building still in use today. It was designed by the Serbian-Bulgarian architect Konstantin Jovanovic in a kind of neo-Renaissance style. And... The other fun fact for the year, 1884 saw the very first telephone call made in Bulgaria. But all that aside, we now begin the momentous year of 1885. Now, 
One major goal Prince Battenberg had entering 1885 was mending relations with Russia. In January of that year, he wrote to the Tsar, quote, I hold the powerful hope that the coming year will present to me the opportunity and occasion to give a visible and tangible evidence of my unimpeachable devotion and undying loyalty to his imperial majesty and his august consort, end quote. So, you know, he's pulling out all the stops to, oh, you know, I, I, I'll do anything to show my loyalty to you. But unfortunately, the Tsar did not react in the way Battenberg had hoped, writing, quote, Never will I believe that he is being honest, and this lying is turning into brazenness and shows once again what a pathetic character this prince is, end quote. So yeah, the, the Tsar is really not pulling any punches here. He... You know, relations have devolved to the point where, you know, Battenberg is still, you know, trying to, to make things work, but Tsar Alexander III is done. He detests Battenberg. He has no patience for him. And really, by this point, the removal of Battenberg was a key mission for Russia's, Russia's entire kind of foreign policy in Bulgaria. And for once, all of Russia's agents in Bulgaria were basically on the same page about this. The Russian state, in fact, became began funding uh, Dragan Sankov's anti-Battenberg newspaper and holding discussions with Stambulov and Karavelov about when and how they could possibly depose of the prince. Russia was particularly worried that Battenberg might marry a German princess, making the possibility of a German alliance, which would be unfavorable to Russia, more likely. Now, Stefan Stambulov in particular rebuffed their concerns and actually defended Battenberg informing both him and Karavelov that he had been approached by the Russians and what the Russians had asked of him. Now, in some discussions, the Russians even hinted that the prince's abdication could be the price that Russia demands to accept unification with Eastern Romalia. Because remember, at this point, Russia's policy is still to stick to the letter of the Treaty of Berlin at all costs. And so anything that would upset that, like Bulgaria unifying with Eastern Romalia, goes against Russia's official foreign policy. So they're really, you know, the fact that they're willing to kind of give that up, this core tenet of their foreign policy in order to potentially get rid of Battenberg, really shows you just how much they don't like him at this point. However, in the early months of 1885, well, these months were mostly filled with activity supporting unification, both with Eastern Rumelia and Macedonia. For example, on February the 10th, the Bulgarian Secret Central Revolutionary Committee was formed in Plovdiv with both of those unifications as its central goals, as well as the eventual, eventual aim of creating a Balkan federation. Now, it was led by Zakhari Stoyanov, a veteran of the April Uprising, under the belief that the same kind of revolutionary activities conducted in the lead-up to that uprising were needed once again. So, this means that we now have Macedonian voice and the... Let's see, what would that be? The BSCRC. I wish there was a shorter name for this organization, but there is not. So we now have two organizations focused on eventual unification with Eastern Rumelia and Macedonia, both of which have basically decided that revolutionary armed uprising kind of activities are going to be core tactics and strategies they are willing to use. Now, this new BRCRC, BSCRC, oh, that's going to be hard. Within a few months, it published public appeals to its mission to honor Lubangarovelov, honor Cyril Amatorius, honor Christo Botev. So it was kind of, 
making statements about all these sort of patriotic um, events and days in the Bulgarian calendar. It also began publishing a newspaper titled Broba, or Fight. And around that same time, the Macedonian Voice organization was itself taking the kind of concrete actions that the BSR, BSCRC was also advocating for. In May, Adam Kalminkov, a Russian officer who had fought in the Russo-Turkish War and the Krasnodar-Razlog uprising, on behalf of the Macedonian Voice organization, basically funded by him, led a 300-man cheta, which raided a military warehouse in Kustendil before taking those weapons to fight in Ottoman Macedonia for the liberation of the territory. Unfortunately for them, though, Ottoman border units had learned of their plan beforehand. So, when the Cheta's four units that had kind of broken up into four separate divisions approached the border at various points, they were met with stiff resistance. Over the course of several days of intense fighting, all the Cheta members were killed or captured. Kalmikov himself died in the fighting. Now, members of Macedonian Voice blamed Petko Karavelov, claiming that he played a part in the disaster, though this has never been proven. But in any case, ultimately, this marked another instance of brave young Bulgarians throwing their lives away, attempting to fight the Ottomans without the direct backing of a larger state. And it went as well as any of the previous attempts. Still, despite this bloody failure by Macedonian Voice, that summer the BSCRC met and decided that it would focus on uniting Bulgaria with Eastern Rumelia before focusing on Macedonia, because, well, Eastern Rumelia seemed like the much easier target for the, to begin with. Now, they also decided that the best way to achieve this aim was through military action, more of a coup rather than a mass uprising. Meanwhile, Russia was deeply concerned about all of these events. Their attention was at this point firmly on Central Asia, and it seemed at this moment that there might even be a war between Britain and Russia over Afghanistan. Because remember, you know, Britain had its colony in India, which was tremendously important, and in these decades, Russia was expanding rapidly in Central Asia, approaching Afghanistan, which, and so, you know, Afghanistan became a place where Britain and Russia, their two empires, were sort of expanding at the same time and potentially meeting. And so there was great European fear that this could turn into a war. All that is to say, Russia was very focused on this and just absolutely did not want anyone causing kind of waves or something in the Balkans. They wanted to be able to focus on Central Asia. But Battenberg was still interested in, well, unifying with Eastern Rumelia. And so in August, he actually met with the BSCRC in Schumann to finalize a plan for unification. So the Bulgarian government was sort of semi-officially now working with them. Karavelov had heard Russia's concerns and responded by moving Macedonian activists away from the border in an attempt to kind of quiet things down there, while at the same time moving ahead with plans for eventual unification with Eastern Rumelia. So Karavelov's kind of playing this game here, right? He's he's trying to placate the Russians and to, to kind of calm things down while making some move with Eastern Rumelia. And at the same time, just like the BS, CRC, and Macedonian Voice, he's basically deciding that Eastern Malia should be the first target and Macedonia the second. Now, that August, a letter from Alexander Battenberg to the Minister of War, Prince Kantakuzin, I don't know what the pronunciation is there, but uh, the Russian official who was acting as a Bulgarian Minister of War read, quote, In Bulgaria, there are only two powers, Russia and myself. 
They must act together. If they do, all the local actors such as Karavelov, Tsankov, Stoilov, etc. are worth nothing. Without collaboration, however, between Russia and the ruling prince, all their petty passions and vanities make their appearance, and they bring the country to anarchy. Neither Russia nor I is able to count on a single one of these so-called parties. They only lie to us and exploit our mutual distrust and our unhappy relations. I fully understand that this situation cannot continue. It is necessary that either you let me come to Petersburg or that I leave Bulgaria. End quote. So you can see at this point that Battenberg is trying to kind of mend fences with Russia by making the argument that Russia can't rely on any of the Bulgarian political parties or actors, and that in effect, he's the only person they can rely on in Bulgaria. Except, of course, as we know, Russia's opinion is that it's completely the opposite, that he is by far the least reliable person in Bulgaria, and they would much rather work with literally any of the political parties. So this is where things stood as August turned into September. The prince had just returned to Bulgaria from an overseas trip where he was informed about the planned uprising of the BSCRC. It was quite awkward for him because he had just told the Russian foreign minister that such an action was not imminent. And there is debate whether Battenberg knew more than he let on because we know he had met with the BSCRC. But it seems likely that if he had actually known how imminent the revolt was, that he wouldn't have reassured the Russian foreign minister so much, considering how important basically building up trust and ties with Russia was for him at this moment. But all that is to say, on the 2nd of September, rioting in favor of unification with Eastern Rumelia broke out in the Eastern Rumelian city of Panagurishte. Men marched through the streets carrying banners reading, Down with Rumelia and Long Live Union. The police contained the situation, but concerns that other incidents would begin occurring throughout eastern Rumelia convinced the BSCRC that its timeline had to be pushed up. This should sound familiar to all of us. They sent representatives to various towns and cities throughout the territory to prepare rebel groups to rise up and march on Plovdiv on September the 15th, when the BSCRC would proclaim unification. So the uprising actually began on September the 4th when a rebel group rose up and proclaimed union with Bulgaria, quickly taking over the village of Guliamo Kunare, 22 kilometers from Plovdiv. By the next day, hundreds more men had gathered there to prepare to march on the eastern Rumelian capital. Men also gathered to proclaim union in Chirpan, Kotel, and Plovdiv itself. Prince Battenberg now faced a dilemma. He could either abdicate and leave the country or accept union and face the consequences from Russia and the great powers. He traveled to his seaside palace to basically think it over and try to figure out what he should do. But, of course, events weren't going to wait for him. Now, Petko Karavelov was also very unsure of what to do. He obviously supported unification, but he was worried about the effect it would have on relations with Russia, which he found were very important. All that is to say, events were on a knife's edge. Uprisings were spreading, but the Bulgarian political and military establishment were entirely unprepared for these events and largely unsure of what to do. Battenberg and Karavelov, the two leading figures in the country, were also completely unsure of how to proceed. Opposing unification could be disastrous for either of them, but supporting it could equally bring disaster. Next time, 
We'll see how they, the great powers, and Bulgaria's neighbors all respond to events as Bulgaria goes through perhaps the most transformative events since 1879. You definitely won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out all kinds of great info at the podcast website and come find us on Facebook. Just search the Bulgarian History Podcast. And I'll see you all in the next one.